0: You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon.
1: Hear the word of the lord from john 1 1 through 18. in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he was in the beginning with god all things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it there was a man sent from god whose name was john For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side.
0: Amen. Uh, I'd like to open up this morning's sermon uh, with a, a quote from a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer. He writes this in the book uh, titled The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Not, not how successful you are in your career, not how well you've built a life for yourself, not even your failures and the places where you've floundered. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Now, we live in a pluralistic society. That, that means that there are a lot of different ideas about who God is. There are a lot of different ideas and and conflicting ideas about who God is and what he's like and why it matters. And what inflames this is epistemological doubt. There's a $5 word for you this morning. Epistemological doubt. Now, break it down. It means that this. It's this question of how can we really know, right? If you say God is this, how do we really know that's true if that guy over there is saying that God is that, So what inflames this pluralistic society where there's lots of different ideas circulating about God, this epistemological doubt inflames this reality of the culture that we live in. Now, thankfully, Christianity has an, an antidote for this nebulous uncertainty. Christianity makes a big claim It asserts what is truth. It says that we can for certain know the real God. And in knowing the real God, we can dismiss all other false gods. So our worship belongs to this true God alone. Now, one of the things that makes this possible is that this God desires to be known by his creatures, by his creation. And so God has revealed himself to us. He hasn't left us in the dark, left us wondering with a bunch of different plausible ideas or semi-plausible ideas. God has revealed himself so that we would see God, that we would know God, and that we would worship him rightly. Now, this is the ultimate scope of the Bible. The Bible is not a book about how to get your life together. The Bible is not a book about rules. The Bible is primarily, the Bible is primarily about revealing who God is and what has God has done. The ultimate scope of the Bible is to help us to know, to see, to know, and to worship God rightly. And not only is this the scope of the Bible, this is actually the, the intent behind John's gospel, which is where we begin our new series today. Very excited to start about a year long journey through the account of, of John, uh, John's account of Jesus' his life and his ministry. Um, in fact, we have these, these little journal Bibles available for you in the entryway uh, that as we make our way through this, I, I want to encourage you to take notes, um, to, to document the things that, that God has revealed to you that maybe you haven't seen before about Himself. Um, and, and actually, just from a practical note, maybe put your name in it, too, because everybody's going to have the same one. Uh, so grab these on your way out. Take some good notes as we go through this year-long thing. But, but this whole, um, the book of John uh, is a historical and theological memoir about Jesus. That's one of the ways that you can explain what this unique genre of the gospel accounts are. It, it, re- it captures historical realities but is also with John specifically is one of the most theological gospel accounts that there are, that we have. And so we're going to spend a whole year working through John's account of Jesus's life and his ministry. And as John shares what he has saw and has or what he has seen and what he has heard from Jesus, correct my bad grammar. What he has seen and heard from Jesus, he collects these pieces of information so that Uh, we would see and hear through him and know this Jesus that he knows so that we might, too, believe. So that we might believe and have life in the name of Jesus Christ, this abundant life that starts now and lasts forever. So today, what we're doing as we enter into the we we, we step into the, the the pool the shallow end of the pool here uh, we're going to look at the prologue this is the very beginning of john's gospel verses 1 through 18 and um i was telling our our band and and um tech team downstairs that this is actually the third time this year that we have actually no the third time within the last six months that we have spent time in this passage um, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and now we get to settle into it uh, for a whole nother time. For, so this is great. Um, and and it's okay if you're like, oh, man, we're, there's not going to be enough here. I've heard this before. It's like, you just hold on, because this is going to get exciting. This is, this is a very su- super interesting piece of your Bible. In fact, lots of ink has been spilled in commentaries over these 18 verses. Um, and, and I think one of the things that this shows us is, in fact, there's, a lot of commentaries write more about this, these 18 verses than they do a whole other chapters of John's gospel. There's just a lot here. And one of the things that I love about this, or I have come to love in my study of this, is that that verse eight, these 18 verses shows us the genius of John as the writer. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is, 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 in effect, here the word of God is coming through this man, but but John is being used to communicate something in a very profound way, and so I, I just don't understand it when people look at the Bible and they're like kind of bored by it, like oh man, it's just an old archaic book. There's not a lot of interesting stuff. It's like you guys, this is this is genius. This is incredible, um, and so John shows us as genius in several ways. First, let me just highlight a couple of things. I'm gonna. I'm going to try to restrain myself from nerding out here in a lot of spaces because some of this is so fascinating. But let me just highlight a few things. First of all, um, there's a slide for this. Um, these first 18 verses serves as a thematic introduction to the entirety of John's gospel. We can find here in, in these first 18 verses, these, a thematic thread that starts here and runs its way through. And you can see the different, I won't go through all of these, but you can see all of these themes in verses 1 through 18 pop up again. The second thing that I love about John's gospel is it skillfully demonstrates continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we see this in verse 1. It begins in the same way, the exact same way, that Genesis 1-1 begins. It says, In the beginning, in the beginning. See, when John is writing, he is trying to show his reader the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that connection is Jesus Christ himself. Now, the third thing that shows us the genius of this writing is the way that the apostle John uses um, phrases that have double meanings, Um, sayings that mean something one way. If you're thinking creationally, it means something this way. Um, And then it means something different if you think about it redemptively. And so the Gospel of John can be read frontwards and backwards. So, frontwards in, or backwards in the sense of it goes back to the beginning, it goes back to creation, it tells us things that are true that all of the, the, the law, the Torah testifies to. But then also, using those same phrases shows us the redemptive glory in Christ. And the fourth thing that I'll share with you today is the way that he uses the word. The word, or the phrase, the word. We see this in the very beginning. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we have this this title called Word, the word. And the way that John uses this, as he writes in the first century, that's believed somewhere between um, 90 AD, probably around 90 AD, was when this was written. John has this unique ability by using this word to connect to both his, his Jewish listener and to his Greek listeners um, by using this phrase, and we'll, we'll kind of get into this in a moment. Now, like I said, everything in me wants to nerd out about this stuff, but we got to hit the main point today. As we, we start this voyage through the gospel of John, the main thing that I want to, to address today is the question is, who is Jesus and why does it matter? And this is really the the main question that we're gonna keep coming back to time and time again as we make our way through this gospel because it is the the primary question John is trying to answer. Who is Jesus and why does it matter? Not only is this the objective of verses one through 18, but this is his, his objective through the whole gospel. This is why one of the features of his gospel includes these seven unique I am statements. No other gospel account has these passages where Jesus says that I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I John, this is unique to John, and he's making a claim about who Jesus is and why it matters. Now, every, every gospel account, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all share the same objective about revealing to us or, or showing us, telling us about who Jesus is, But John takes a very different approach from these other Synoptic Gospels. In Matthew's Gospel, both Matthew and Luke start out their Gospels by by telling about Jesus' birth. Um, And and they both have a unique approach in that Matthew wants to help us see that that in Jesus, uh, in his birth, he was born a Jew, so it begins with Abraham. In Luke's Gospel, he's a little bit more thorough and he starts way back with Adam. So he goes all the way back to, to the Garden of Eden where Adam was created. But it starts with his birth. Mark's gospel has a different approach. It just starts and goes right into Jesus's ministry. And he's trying to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophesied, uh, the prophesied Messiah. But John has a different approach in that when, G, when, when John opens up his account, he wants you to know who Jesus is in this way. Take a look with me. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John starts out his gospel, and he wants you to know right away that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. He is God, the true God, the eternal, almighty creator of the cosmos. This is why he starts with this allusion to Genesis chapter one, where the origin story, we just got done with the whole sermon series in Genesis one through three. He wants to tie you back to this creational reality that in the beginning, before there was anything made, Jesus existed. He was there with God and he was God. God. And to help us kind of track with him here, he uses the word, the word, which might seem to us like a strange phrase. Now let me show you how this ties into to his, his Jewish and both Greek audiences here. To, to this, this audience, this would have made a lot of sense, or at least they would have had some idea of what he was talking about when, they, when he used the word, the word. Now, as a Jewish reader, they, they would hear this title, The Word, and they would associate this with God's speech. Um, And and it would actually be tied back first to creation because when God speaks, he speaks all things into existence. God spoke, let there be light, and there was light, right? So God speaks, the word of God uh, carries this powerful, authoritative, life-shaping force. But there's also the word in the sense of um, the Torah, the law, or, or the prophets even that God had appointed men and women to speak, like Moses and the prophets and some prophetess, to speak God's word into the world. And so the Jewish readers would hear the word of God, and they would think of this as sort of authoritative truth, this declarative truth, this life-shaping force in the world. And so they they would think of that. Now, the Greeks would have a different framework than their Jewish counterparts, and, and their framework of this word would be established by the philosophers um, that preceded Jesus. You'd have some of the Stoics who thought, when they used the, the term, uh, the word, or, or logos, um, they, they used it as the, the rational principle by which the cosmos was made. So it wasn't attached to the scriptures, but they could see, they could look at the natural world and said, behind all of this creation is a... a, a, a A rational force, a rational thing that is holding this together, that has created this. Now, others in the Jewish circles would uh, hear the word logos and think of it as, as a, the ideal, whether it's the ideal world or the ideal man, the sort of archetypal idea that there's something out there that is right and perfect and good, and the world that we operate in is sort of aspiring to get to that level. And so th- these are the two different views that you have. The Jews coming in with one thing, the, the Greeks coming in with another, and there's a lot of debate over, com- commentators debate a lot about in which way is John using this term? Is he he targeting the Jewish idea? Is he targeting the Greek idea? And, And really what John is doing, he's not adopting either one of those in its fullness. What John is doing is blowing up their paradigm. He's blowing up the framework that these people have and expanding it, taking it to a whole new level where people have never understood the word, the logos like this before. It's as if John is saying to his listeners, you guys have been dealing with the shadows. You've seen the shape, you've seen the silhouette, you've seen the figure, but here is the substance of the word. Here is the organizing principle, the organizing person behind the cosmos. Here is the archetype, here is the truth, the proclamation of God. And the word is a person. The word is not an idea. It's not a theory. The word is a person. It's the second member of the Trinity who we know as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we're told that the word, in verse 14, it goes on to tell us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So right here, John is telling us that this eternal word, the creator of the cosmos here, puts on flesh that the word becomes manifest. It, it appears to us, it's revealed in a brand new way like never before. Here we have the eternal, infinite creator entering the temporal creation, taking on flesh. Now, this doesn't mean that, that Jesus, who uh, you've probably figured out by now, but Jesus is the word. We, we can draw that connection as we move forward. He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is not part God and part man like some 50-50 cocktail concoction. Jesus enters into the world fully God and puts on flesh as fully man, occupying both natures, fully God and fully man. And what he tells us, that as we keep reading, that, that Jesus put on flesh and he came to his own. Speaking of God's covenant people, he came to the Jews. But this Jesus, this incarnate word, was not received and was not recognized. Just think for a moment. The, the creator of the cosmos, it's like um, like this. Uh, this is a terrible analogy, but it just came to me. If um, you've seen the show Undercover Boss, you know, we're like you've got the CEO of a super successful company, and he steps into one of their like branches, and he puts on garb that makes him look like your average employee, and you know, and interacts like that, right? And and usually they don't recognize him, and they see all the good stuff and all the bad stuff of his organization, all that stuff. I don't, I've never really watched it, but the premise, there it is. It's like that. Jesus put on flesh, the CEO of the cosmos put on your average everyday attire, entered into the place where his people, if there should have been anybody who knew him, it would have been his own people. He stepped into that spot and nobody had a clue. Nobody recognized him. Nobody received him as the creator. In the first century, the Jews didn't get it. And and still today, there are many who have the law, and they have the prophecies that point to Jesus, and they still don't get it. They didn't get it because Jesus blows up their paradigm. Jesus blows up the box that we try to put him in, and the same things happen with us today as we study the scriptures, as we go to the word of God to gain understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and what he's like. God blows up everything that we thought we knew about who Jesus is. Because a lot of times we come with a Jesus um, that isn't revealed, but created by our own imaginations. A, a lot of times we come thinking that, well, you know, my version of Jesus is this. He, he's, he's just like, he's a wise sage. He's, he's a smart guy. He says some really helpful stuff along the way. Um, he seems pretty friendly. He could be my buddy, maybe a drinking buddy, because he's cool. Um, view him as a first century role model, this, or, or, or what's become the case um, a, a, across evangelical world is that Jesus is just this really nice guy, this really nice guy who wants everybody happy, and because he wants everybody to be happy, he never says anything hard. And so we have this man-made version of Jesus, not the real Jesus, And what happens as we read the Bible, as we study the Gospel of John, our man-made version of Jesus, this this framework, this box that we've put him in, what you'll find is God explodes it. You're welcome. Because a man-made Jesus is of no value to you. A man-invented Jesus has no real power. A Jesus that's been invented is just a figment of your imagination. But John testifies that Jesus is real. The real Jesus was really real. Now, if you invent Jesus, if, if you create your own version of Jesus, let me ask you, who has control over that Jesus? You do. It's a Jesus that's made in your own image, in your own likeness. And that Jesus, and he might be just a little bit better than you, like really. Yeah, I know Jesus isn't exactly like me, but maybe just like three degrees better. But that Jesus who's made in your image will rarely confront you in your sin. He'll rarely call you out on your folly. You're... This Jesus is always giving you the thumbs up. You're doing great, buddy. Keep it going. Even when you're blowing up your life. See, man-made Jesus is not of any use to you. And because John and God Almighty want you to have life and life to the fullest, John comes to set the record straight. He comes and he says, hey, listen up, everybody. Jesus the eternal word put on flesh, and this word incarnate is God. Now, just a quick survey of comparative religions. This is the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Mormons think Jesus is is a created, that they put him in a different category, not as fully God, but some kind of deity but not the Son of God in the way that Christians speak of it. Muslims view Jesus as uh, a good teacher, a good prophet. And other religions, just put Jesus in sort of the pantheon of other gods. Christians say Jesus is God. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, which is the only God. Jesus is the fullness of the preeminent Creator. Now, this is a theme that we see. um, The Apostle John, actually, our our profession of faith came from this, or Apostle Paul um, used in Colossians 1. Our profession of faith was based on this. He says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. So before anything was created, in fact, uh, Jesus existed, and all things came into creation because of Jesus. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here we have the creator, the sustainer of the cosmos. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now listen to this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the incarnate word within Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing John wants you to know is that Jesus is God, Jesus is creator, Jesus is sustainer. And then he expands on this statement in verse four where he says, In, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here we're, we're told that Jesus is the word, and the word is life and light. Now again, here, here's one of the places where you see the genius of John when you read it backwards and forwards. Jesus is life and light in the creational sense, right? This this is meant to trigger you back to Genesis chapter one, where in day one of creation, God spoke and light appeared. Day six, God breathed his breath into man and had life. So here we see the light and the life in creation. But one of the things that John wants us to see also, it isn't just that Jesus Is alive, it's that Jesus is life himself. That life is found in Jesus. There is no life apart from Jesus. And this life that Jesus brings is the light of men, that it illuminates reality. It is the true life as True light, as verse 9 says. Now, we can read that backwards. We can read it forwards as well because as we see, Jesus, he's not just the creator, but he's revealing himself as redeemer too. So it's not just that Jesus is the eternal God who created the cosmos, but he is the the redeemer of the created cosmos. Now, what, what John 1 here is, is a burning bush moment. This is a burning bush moment. This is a revelatory moment. If you remember uh, Moses' the story where God's people are are trapped in Egyptian slavery, Moses has fled away to the wilderness, and God reveals himself to Moses at a burning bush. And God tells Moses, I am going to redeem my people, my covenant people who are mine, I am going to bring them out of this land that is oppressing them. I'm gonna free them. I'm going to redeem them. And Moses asks this God who is in the burning bush, he says, who should I say is sending me? And God replies to Moses, I am who I am. Now, this is, this is one of the things that makes John's gospel so cool. And those seven I am statements that we'll see later on when Jesus says, I am the vine, They're all pointing back to this reality. When God is revealing himself to Moses as the redeemer of his people, it's as if Jesus is again, or Jesus himself in the word, the word made flesh is being revealed as creator and redeemer. He says, I am here to deliver my people from their sin, from death and the grave. Now, as Jesus is depicted as light and life, this sets him in in contrast to the world which he enters, okay? The world that Jesus steps into is not the same world that was in Genesis 1 and 2, where everything was great, everything was good, very good. The world that Jesus stepped into was the cursed world of Genesis 3, where sin and death infiltrated everything. So when Jesus enters as light and life, this puts him in contrast to the world that is blanketed in darkness, that's, that's infiltrated with evil and corruption. And it isn't just that Jesus stands out against the world. He stands out against other humans because this, this problem, this evil, this corruption, this sinfulness isn't an isolated problem with people out there or this part of the world or this part of the city. It's a problem that is, originates within your own heart. That your sin has corrupted you. And we're told that the the wages of sin is death. So here you have the darkness of sin. You have the wages of sin being death. It's, it's It's a world of death and darkness. And Jesus steps into this world to redeem people from death and darkness, to bring them to light and life. Now, John says that that he put on flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus became like us in the human sense. But when Jesus steps into this dark world and dwells among us, he doesn't become like us in the sense where we're sinful. Jesus was able to remain uncorrupted by sin. Though he has the flesh like us, he is sinless and undefiled, which reveals the third thing here that John really wants us to see about Jesus. He wants us to see the glory of Jesus, the beauty, the radiance, the magnificence of Jesus. And this glory of Jesus shines all the brighter against the dark backdrop of this defiled world and sinful humanity. So the glory of God can be seen John says that this is a unique glory in verse 14. He says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. A glory that is loaded, loaded full with grace and truth. Now in the way that that John uses the word dwell, when he says dwell among us, the uh, uh, translation for that would be tabernacled. And anytime you start talking about tabernacle or temple, you start invoking this idea of this place where God actually, his presence was, was there amongst his people. And in the tabernacle, in the temple, was this place called the Holy of Holies, where God's most potent presence in the world dwelt. And here, John is telling us, the glory of God, like never before, is found in Jesus. It's a special kind of glory that is unique only to the Son of God because it's a redeeming kind of glory. There's a creational glory. There's a redemptive glory. This is glory that is full of grace and truth. Now, this is important A lot of times people talk about it, Jesus was well-balanced. He had a balance of grace and truth, like 50% grace, 50% truth. No, Jesus was full of grace and truth, both of them, simultaneously, meaning that it is impossible for anyone to be more gracious than Jesus while simultaneously being more truthful than Jesus, This is the glory of God. Have you ever, a lot of times, because this is what cooks our noodle. We think that being truthful is to be mean. To be truthful is to be unloving. But Jesus shows us that's not at all the case. Redeeming glory is full of grace and truth. We need both of those because truth sets the standard. It tells us what is pleasing and acceptable to God. It says this is what God loves, this is what God approves, and we see this, it's given to Moses in the law, which John references. Truth sets the standard, and what the law does, it it, it condemns us. The law is not bad. The law reveals our badness, our sinfulness. The law exposes us for who we are. The law tells the truth about you about me. See, this is why a man-made Jesus is insufficient. What a man-made Jesus is, is always gonna drop the bar, always gonna drop the standard, so that you just barely squeak in. But the real Jesus toes the line. Now, that in itself is glorious. The law has a certain kind of glory. But what John is pointing to here is that Jesus comes full of truth and grace. Grace in the sense that grace is the fulfillment of that law on behalf of sinners. See, Jesus comes knowing the standard, knowing the truth. He upholds the standard, perfectly keeps the law all of the days of his life. And he tells the truth about our condition. He, He tells us that there is none other like me. Nobody is good. Nobody is perfect. He doesn't drop the bar. He doesn't start changing what sin is and what sin isn't to, get, to, to make it more palatable to the culture. Jesus holds a line. And the glory of Jesus has shown that by his grace, Jesus fulfills the law. Jesus holds the standard for us. That by faith, we can claim that as ours because Jesus claimed our sin. So that by believing in Jesus, and and listen, believing is, I looked this up, this is crazy. I think the word belief or believe or faith is used like 98 times throughout John's gospel. John uses that phrase more than any other book of the Bible. In fact, most of the New Testament put together. John has an objective that he wants you to see the real Jesus as God so that you would believe, know and believe in him. That God would reveal himself to you through the person and work of Christ. And by his revelation, you would have grace upon grace. Now, I skipped over a very important part earlier. When Jesus came into the world, his own people didn't receive him, but here's what verse 12 says. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this, this, this belief is not um, a kind of wishful thinking. This kind of belief isn't like, you know, I'm keeping my options open and, you know, we'll see how it all shakes out. The belief that John is looking to produce in his readers, in his listeners, is a confident, resilient understanding and certainty that Jesus is who he says he is. The writer of Hebrews says, faith is assurance of things hoped for. This assurance, that's what belief is. A, a, a full weight placed upon Jesus so that those who believe in him will receive grace upon grace. Now, this grace upon grace is expressed as being adopted as God's children. Listen, when you were born, you were born into sin. Ephesians tells us that you were born dead into sin, that there was no goodness in you. There was nothing that you could do to move yourself from death to life. You were born in sin. In fact, Paul says that you were orphans of wrath. And here, John says that those who receive Jesus receive grace upon grace and are brought into God's own family that Jesus, the unique Son of God, offers us a place at the table with God the Father. He says we're given the right to become children of God. And so that means that if you're in Christ, if you believe in Christ, you don't come to the table in this timid sort of fashion. It's not like, oh, God, don't look at me too long because I'm embarrassed. No, 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 Jesus gives us the right to sit at the table with God, not because of anything that you've done, not because of your fears. Check this out. Verse 13, he says, um, He gives us the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. That the Spirit of God, we'll see this later on, regenerates our hearts. And in doing so, brings us into God's family. In Jesus, we see that we are not only created by him, but we are redeemed by him. This reality radiates the glory of Jesus. No other God enters into the world like Jesus did. No other world religion offers a God who enters into the world like Jesus did. This radiates the glory of God. The glory of the sun. Now let me ask you this, as I close out, what should our response to glory be? If Jesus is, in fact, life, if Jesus is the light that pushes back darkness, where darkness can't overcome it, if Jesus is glory, what should our response to glory be? Worship. When you see Jesus is God, your only response can be worship. Not just Sundays, but your whole life is an act of worship to God. This is, what, this is what sets the church apart from the world. It's not that we got everything sorted out. It's not that we stopped sinning. It's that our worship is devoted only to to God, only to Jesus, because Jesus is God. Now, going back to that that Tozer quote that I started with, what do you think of when you think about God? You should think of Jesus, this glorious, special revelation of God himself, the word incarnate, because what John closes with here in his prologue, he says that no one has ever seen God. The only God. Nobody's ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has made God known to us. So when we think about God, we think about the right God, the only God, the true God. We think of Jesus Christ. And God works in a way where he turns on the lights of our hearts. John, or Paul talks about uh, God has made the light of Christ shine into our hearts. He shines the light into our hearts so that life can abound. And when this happens, this is, a mar- this is an indicator. If, if you really believe that Jesus is God, that you have seen the light, that you have received life and adoption, then you become an evangelist like John. One of your greatest missions in life then is to make this Jesus known wherever you are so that others can hear and see and believe in this Jesus so that the glory of Christ may be known so the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be worshiped. Jesus came into the world so you could know God and Jesus is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though you created the world and it, it, it rebelled against you, humans rebelled against you bringing corruption and death, you didn't, you didn't trash the world. You put on flesh so you could redeem it. This morning as we come to the Lord's table, we look at the, at the body, the flesh that Jesus put on, he did so that it could be broken. The blood that was pumping through Jesus' veins was there so they could be spill, spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And so this morning, we come to the table as Christians who have seen the glory of God in Christ. We have seen the light. We, we have received life. Lord, would this meal sustain us now? And for those who have not yet put their trust in Jesus, who do not yet believe, Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to them, that, that, that their are the eyes of their hearts might see you for who you are, that their heart would be reordered to worship rightly and that life may abound. We ask this, Lord, knowing that you are a gracious God, full of grace and truth. Have mercy upon sinners. You are worthy of our praise and our allegiance. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.